Welcome to Succession Stories. I'm Lori Barkman. As an exit value planning and M&A advisor, I call myself the business transition Sherpa. This podcast guides entrepreneurs from transition to transaction, from building value in your business to letting go. What do I do when I'm not hosting a podcast? I work with owners to maximize business value with my firm, small.big. And as a certified mergers and acquisitions advisor with Stony Hill, I guide you through the complex process of selling your company. Tune into Succession Stories for weekly insights to reward your hard work and avoid succession regrets. Hit subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and sign up for our newsletter at successionstories.com. Here's to your success. Is this the year to sell your company? Don't leave your exit to chance. Stony Hill Advisors works with entrepreneurs like you to get ready for what may be the biggest transaction of your life. Learn what your business is worth by visiting stonyhilladvisors.com slash podcast. Jennifer Ake Marriott is the second generation president of Ake Environmental, a company founded by her father. She's also the CEO of Redmond Waltz, serving as the first non-family leader of the privately held company. Jen joined me to talk about an important topic, how to handle the unexpected tragedy when an owner passes away. Jennifer shares her experience with two companies that went through unexpected succession, her insights as to what helped the companies move forward and what derailed progress. We also discussed what you can do today to mitigate risks like documenting key processes and strategic planning. Nobody's expecting a tragedy to happen or for succession to happen as a result of a death. Perhaps this episode will help you think about business continuity and how to mitigate risks of an unexpected transition. Enjoy my conversation about the succession of culture after tragedy strikes with Jennifer Ake Marriott. Jennifer Ake Marriott, thank you so much for joining me on Succession Stories. People often ask me how I meet my guests, so I thought I'd start with that little story of how you and I met recently in Cleveland, Ohio. I was a guest speaker in your Vistage group hosted by Christy Lyris, and we had a great workshop. I think, yeah. you know, at the end of it, you said, I would love to tell the story about the companies I work with. So I'll just tee it up briefly okay. as a way to introduce you and as a way to introduce this topic. So you are the CEO of a company and a president of another company. And these right. two, as I mentioned in the introduction of the show, these two businesses had a tragedy. You've been involved to support both businesses after the tragedy, before and after in one of right. them. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the tragedy, but I'm going to tee up the concept of why you and I got connected for today and why we think this is an important topic for the audience. And that is because sometimes in businesses, things happen that we don't control. Yeah. And this particular story, it's about a death. It's yeah. about unexpected death and it's, and it's sad, but as a business, we need to move forward. And so in the perspective of business transition, contingency planning and thinking about future exit, it really ties in well with the show. I'm so excited you're here and thank you in advance for sharing your story. Oh, well, I'm really pleased to be here and I so appreciate being asked. I'm very excited to talk about this. So let's start with the companies. Share a little bit about the first company, which is a family business, right? Ake Environmental. Tell us a yeah. little bit about the company and how you came into it 
and then we'll get into the, the, the tragedy that you faced. So Ake Environmental was started by my dad, Sam Ake, in 1970, and he was predating the EPA, but he saw this need that it was local health departments needed people that were going to do analysis of drinking water and wastewater. So he started this business to do that. His father was an engineer that worked in that area, was a public engineer. And so he had a sort of working knowledge of of that sort of industry. So he started the company, then the EPA is formed, and suddenly now there is a legal need for these services of people to operate drinking water facilities and wastewater facilities and do the analysis. So that's the beginning of the business. Eventually, it grew to include a lot of other services that are sort of related that were very heavy equipment oriented that had to do you know, with construction and tank trucking, all kinds of stuff. That was the sort of genesis of the business. And my dad's business partner was his little sister. And I began working for the company in a formal way. I mean, the reality is in a family business, you always work there. <laughs> you <know? laughs> like, you're just there. Um, but in a formal way, about 2000, 2001, I came in to do marketing. The company had been really successful almost in spite of itself because it was this built-in, you had to have it. This is a legal requirement. And it's such a niche service that there's just not a lot of people that do it. So my dad never really advertised. They never really did anything like that. And he decided that, you know, this website thing is new. Maybe we should have a website. Maybe we should have marketing. You know, maybe we should, our sales process should be something other than just answering the phone. So I came in and I was doing that stuff on the side as a part-time job. And I sort of was parked in the office next to my aunt. My dad was the sales guy. He was the brand ambassador, the client person. He's an entrepreneur, sees opportunity everywhere, a total optimist. My aunt, she was the administrative side. She was everything else. And to a large degree, she was kind of the ballast in the company that sort of kept things grounded. So if my dad was the fuel, she was the motor. And that's kind of how they worked. So I I worked next to her, got to know generally what she was doing. I knew what she was responsible for, for sure. And so then, you know, we had this event in 2002 and I just happened to be there. My aunt left work on a Friday and died Saturday morning at age 50. She had had heart problems her whole life. The family chose not to do an autopsy to find out what really happened. That's assumed that what happened to her. But certainly she didn't leave Friday thinking that she wasn't going to be back. So if you can imagine your desk on a Friday afternoon, what it looks like, that's what her desk looked like. So that's kind of the role that I ended up stepping into because there was just nobody else. Wow. Let me just pause there and just say, I'm so sorry to hear about that tragedy. I know it was some time ago and your family has had time to heal. Yeah. Um, How old were you roughly? Okay. Let me, 2002, I was 31. You were in your thirties. Your dad was older than your, than his sister, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like 50, like seven years older. Yeah. So he was in his mid fifties and what a shock. How many employees were in the company at the time? Around 25, you know, a classic small business size, I guess. Yeah, there were about 25 employees and we had a lot of different service lines. And so there were some people that were highly specific and then other people that could kind of cross over into a lot of different things. 
So she goes home on a Friday. Everybody's thinking that, okay, see you Monday, right? We all say that, see you Monday. And she never returned. Right. Obviously there's shock and grief and mourning that happens in any business, not just a family business, but this was your family. Did the company shut down? What, What happened in the weeks following? We did shut down on the day of her funeral. But the reality is, is because the services that we provide, some of the services, our core service line is providing EPA required inspections. That's a legal requirement. And there are legal time constraints of when that can be done. And it has to be nine consecutive days when it's done and for a certain amount of time. So the EPA doesn't care if you're sick or if something happens, it just has to be done. So you know, we, we figured it out somehow. I don't really remember how, but, you know, we certainly, we took a pause out of respect for my aunt, but there was also just sort of a chaotic busyness that went on of like, oh my God, we got to figure this out. And it was a payroll week and she did payroll. So, I mean, it was like, you had to figure that out too. Yeah, absolutely. So payroll needed to be run and the business needed to run EPA regulations. Yeah. We got to do business as usual. Oh my goodness. I can't even imagine the shock and how you come back into that situation. What did your dad, if you put yourself back in his shoes at that time, if you can remember, what did he go through and pick up the pieces, so to speak? How did he start moving forward in a way that gave the business continuity? And what was your role in that? You know, thinking back, he hovered. He was highly attentive to everyone. He was grieving in a way that could only, he was constant motion. I remember that, you know, I think that there was just a lot of fear of what am I going to do? I don't know what she did. (laughs) You know, she just handled things. And, but also, yeah, that emotional part of it, of his little sister, I, I, you know, it's so funny. You asked it. This is an obvious question that I should probably know the answer to. And I, I don't exactly know other than, he was really concerned. I think he knew that we were going to figure out a way out of it because that is inherently who he is. He's a like, you know, there's a solution to every problem kind of person, but the how of it was totally unknown. And the grief almost got put to the side, I think in a large degree, because there were clearly people in the company are wondering, I mean, and this is not a bad thing, but what's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to my job? And so those things needed to be attended to. Yeah, it's a very fraught moment. And I think that instinctively he did the right thing, which was being highly visible and showing up and, you know, communicating, checking in with people. She, it's a small business. We had long time employees. So everybody was grieving. It was, it wasn't easy. It was hard. I can't even imagine. And here you are, you're 30, you've come into this marketing role you know, marketing, because you were in the marketing role, right? That was what yeah. your dad, at, you know, brought you in. And that's what you're doing. What did he ask you to do? How could you help him? How did you help him? He didn't even know what to ask me to do. The first problem was payroll. I mean, that was the immediate thing. We got to get checks out to people. I had a slight, you know, I had some bookkeeping experience. So I, I could figure out some of that stuff. But It was really a research project in so many ways in that everything that was on her desk, you know, I studied every post-it. I kept those post-its. I kept her desk pad. I kept everything 
for at least two years. Every piece of mail that came in, you know, I, ha- I didn't have a context for a lot of things. I didn't know how important one thing was compared to another thing necessarily. Some things you do, but some things I didn't. And it's one of the issues that happens in a closely held family business is that there aren't committed written processes or there aren't a documentation for some of the activity that goes on because you're talking about it all the time and you see these people all the time. And so there's not, you know, it doesn't feel necessary, feels redundant. And you don't have time for that anyway, because you're wearing five other hats. But coming in on the backside of that and not having a roadmap for really anything, it was a real learning process. And then trying to interpret what she was doing within something, it's challenging. We got through it, you know, and also to allow yourself a little grace. You don't know everything. You know, balls will be dropped. You just hope that they're not the big ones. And chances are they're not going to be because the big ones are really obvious. It's the little things that, you know, oh, I'm the one that orders the letterhead. Oh, you know, it's just sort of like, yeah. oh, and we're out. Uh-oh. You know, yeah. it's just kind of, I mean, it's a small business. So she was doing a lot of stuff. Yeah, you figure it out. You just figure it out. So there's the immediacy of it, of, right. oh my gosh, we got to get payroll. And then there's this transitional period and then there's the longer term. So if we flash forward to other people getting involved, did you hire someone to replace the roles? Like you said, she wore five hats. How did you end up doing it? Did you end up documenting the, the roles that she played? Did you end up splitting them into roles that other people would handle? Did you end up taking on some of those things or outsourcing? How did you end up doing it? So some of those things did have to be split off. We have a lab, an in-house lab that runs analyses. Um, Her background was in biology. She was in charge of the lab. She was filling in, doing analyses if if lab techs were out. I don't have that background. I don't know any of that stuff. So there were some pretty immediate promotions that happened in the lab, but that was pretty much it. It was really up to me to kind of figure things out and The thing that I learned that I didn't know is that, you know, if my father was the fuel and my my aunt was the the engine, she was also acting as a considerable break in that she had constructed her role. It was wide in scope, but it was limited in time. She worked about 20 hours a week and she volunteered a lot. She was active in her kids' school. She had built the life that she wanted for herself. And so she was, she was a limiting factor on a lot of my dad's ideas and things that he wanted to do. But I'm my father's daughter. So I step into this role and I immediately see opportunity and like, oh my God, why are we not doing this? Why are we not doing that? We could do this. And I got very excited. And my dad got very excited because suddenly it's like, oh, things are possible. What I didn't realize then And it is so important, I think, in succession, especially in small business. We tend to think of succession in terms of a job or a role. We really got to think about the succession of the culture. And what I didn't realize then is that the culture, the people within the business that were working there, you know, they both are formed by and inform the culture that exists. And Weirdly, no one was that hot for things to change, you know, or to do more or to be bigger. My dad and I were, nobody else, not so much. You know, things were going well. What are we doing this for? And add on to that, I'm the daughter. 
I'm a kid. I'm whatever that is. You know, I was put into this leadership position and it didn't matter. I segued into this leadership position. It didn't matter like how often I was right or that I was right at all. I had no credibility and people were not that into where I was leading them. And there was a lot of challenges along the way that I just didn't foresee at all. And I was too inexperienced to know that this is a really important component, that succession is not just about who's going to do that job. It's about understanding that, especially in a leadership role, it's about the, the company as a whole and who's in it. And if looking back, had we had conversations with key people early on and it brought them into what the plan was, I think things could have been a lot different. Um, at least we would have known sooner that we were going to have issues. We didn't do that. It just, we didn't know, didn't occur to us to do that. Was when you say um, it was more, uh, was it more sudden? Was it within the first year, first six months, first three months? First couple years, the first year to two years, I was just, I was still doing my marketing stuff and I was filling in the, like the task responsibility gap that my aunt had left behind. Um, about two, three years in, then my dad wanted to make my role official and permanent. And so I became vice president. That was probably, (laughs) that was the first sort of like inkling, I think were probably some of the people, um, you know, not all the people I don't, and it's not everybody, but there were a few key people that were, um, you know, they were my dad's people that they were not ready to have anybody else be in charge other than my dad. And my dad started taking a step back so that I could take a step forward. And that was, it was awful. It was really emotional. It was challenging. It just was really, really hard. We made a lot of mistakes in that way. And um, so it was a transition over years to the total leadership position and to becoming president didn't happen until Oh gosh, I want to say 2007. But yeah, the, you know, it sort of went in this incremental way that seemed very natural and slow, you know, gentle. Yeah, it was over a period of years. It was over time. Yeah. And thank you for sharing this. It has come up on this show a couple of other times when I do ask people about how they came into the company and if they're a next gen like yourself, whether they're second or third, et cetera. And everybody's story is a little bit different. And yeah. I can appreciate when things go well, that's awesome. And I can appreciate when things don't go well. We, we learn so much when things don't necessarily go the way we would have liked. Who is your most important customer? The person who buys your business. Stony Hill Advisors works with owners to maximize the value when you're ready to sell. Get started today with a business valuation by visiting stonyhilladvisors.com slash podcast. If you were going to put yourself back with your dad at that time, what do you think could have made a difference with his, with I call his people, I'm trying yeah. to paraphrase what you said. They were long-term employees that maybe he had hired. Do you think there would have been anything that you guys could have done differently to help them? Or do you think that no matter what you would have done, they just saw things the way they saw things? I think looking back, had we brought some of those key people in, and and I think that that's really important, recognize who are the people that are making your company go now, and just understand that if it's going to go after you're gone, you need them also. 
And if they are not part of getting there, you know, you're not doing anybody any favors. And I think that had we early on brought in those key people and just had a meeting, even one meeting might have made a difference to just talk about, here's what's going on. Here's what we're going to do. Here's the plan. How does everybody feel? Because ultimately, their feelings, their perception of how things are going is incredibly important. You know, they, you know, I got sandbagged in so many different ways because people were resistant that had I been able or had the opportunity to enroll them in a different idea, empower them in a different idea, who knows what would have been different? You know, eventually those people are not here anymore. You know, you learn that lesson too, that it's just sort of like, well, there's a couple of ways I can fix this culture, you know? Um, but it, the culture, the culture needed to change. It was going to change. And there were some people that were resistant to change and eventually, you know, they were just gone. I don't know. I, I think retros, you know, that could have happened sooner. Perhaps I could have, I would have, an older version of me would have uh, tried less, I think for a shorter period of time. But I think definitely those initial conversations to get people in and just to give them a degree of awareness of what the plan is, where they figure into the plan and how you got there, giving them some context as to, you know, I'm not there in a leadership role just because I'm his kid. Right. You know, my, right. my credentials go a little deeper than that. And, um, and it's funny, you know, I, years later, um, when I came to my next company, Somebody said to me, you know, you're the first non-family member to run this business. And I said, well, that's really interesting to me. You know, tell me, what, why, why does that feel important to you? I said, because, you know, I'm in a family business. And to me, I feel like who knows more about the company? We talk about it at Christmas, at Thanksgiving. I've been in this my whole life. You know, and he's like, well, you know, and he didn't really have a great answer, but it made me realize, like, yeah, the thing that we think is family people that are in family businesses, the outside world is not looking at you like that. You know, they're looking at you and you do have an advantage, but they're looking at you as having more advantage than maybe you do. Interesting. The way you phrased it too is, I think, insightful succession of the culture yeah. that has come up in conversation on this show a number of times that it isn't necessarily about one person, but it's about the vision of the company and how you pull people forward you obviously went through a lot of change with Ake Environmental. The company, yeah. you're still involved with it. You're still, still the involved, president still of president, it. Yeah. Yeah. And you're wearing two hats. You mentioned this other company. And of course, I mentioned it in your introduction. Let's switch gears and let's talk about Redmond Waltz. How did you come into Redmond Waltz? It comes back to Vistage, right? In your connection yeah, with Vistage. But let's share, let's share how you came into Redmond Waltz, why your learnings from your experience with Ake Environmental were related to that and you know share a little bit about the company if you will. Sure. So Redmond Waltz is another family business owned by the Wagner family. It uh, started in 1946. It's an electric motor repair business. So if you think large size AC DC motors that you would find in a steel mill or a forging plant or a metal stamper, manufacturing processes writ large. Um, they exist, they're in downtown Cleveland. They've been there since, uh, well, since the beginning, since 1946. Um, and their owner, Lori Wagner, is somebody that I knew through Vistage. Um, he was a friend in Vistage, although he, I knew him in his role as he was the president of another company called Leadco. And uh, Leadco was this organization that was 
uh, they were creating this, um, I guess it was a pilot project, but it was for offshore wind in Lake Erie. And it was just a huge, you know, huge project. And um, he was leading that incredibly complicated, difficult work, really challenging. You know, it was the kind of thing where it's like the deadline's Friday for this 500-page submittal to the Department of Energy for this, that, and the other. You know, designing a grid is <laughs> sort of like... Yeah, complicated. <laughs> complicated. Anyway, in, um, in the spring of um, 2013, his wife died very suddenly. And it was one of these terrible stories that we hear about where she had some symptoms of, I think, some back pain and sort of put it to the side, you know, chalked it up to any number of things. And finally, it got persistent enough that she went to get it checked out. And it turned out that she had cancer. And within like six weeks, she had died. So it was very sudden. Um, in fact, so sudden that the employees, when I spoke to them later, many of them only found out that she had had can that she had cancer like the week before she died. So when she died, it was really, really shocking. So, Lori, my friend, um, you know his his wife dies, and I did what you do with your business friends, your business colleagues, and I sent a note that said, um, "Let me know if there's anything I can do." And I don't know what exactly I was offering to do. You know, I don't know in my mind, is it like a phone call? What am I making copies? Like, I don't know what I thought that was going to look like. But anyway, I and he got back to me at, um, at some point. I don't know if it was immediately. I, I sort of fuzzy on the timeline of things. But he got back to me and he said that he needed somebody to run his family's business. And, you know, I didn't really know much about it. And um, so we got together and we talked about it. And here was this company that did industrial services um, where the owner dies and they had gone through financial difficulty. My own family business, 28, uh, 2008 to 2010 were really rough years for our company. So I'd been there, um, had gone through a lot of financial difficulties. Owner dies, you know, it like everything sort of lined up, like all the experiences were like, oh yeah, I, well, I already did that. I know how to do this. And so we had some more discussions about it. And, um, you know, and through those discussions, I sort of decided like, uh, well, let me take a look. Nobody was right. And this was the thing that was just so, I don't know, charmed. It seems like too small of a world, a word for this, but I was um, just enchanted by that the owner, the boss dies and people just kept coming to work. I found this to be incredible. If there was ever a time to jump ship of your financially struggling company that you work for, and everybody knew the financial struggles, that seems like, you know, nobody would fault you for walking out the door, but nobody did. They were still there. They were still working it. And Lori was doing his best to kind of manage this from afar and stop in. But, but he had this totally consuming other thing besides the fact of grieving and all of that stuff. Um, high school age children, it was really, you know, awful. Um, and so somebody really needed to be in charge. And he knew that it was struggling. He didn't know to the degree that it was struggling. And at the time in the beginning, he sort of thought like, I need somebody to, I don't know, close it up, fix it up. I don't really know. I don't know what's there. It's too emotional. And I don't want to look at it, really. Um, so I said, okay, well, let me take a look. And I stepped in 
Um, and I just went there like a couple times a week for like a month and dug around and, you know, talked to people and, and saw that it was struggling. It was a lot worse than he thought it was. Um, but it was, it was savable. I didn't, the math worked. I don't, you know, there wasn't a reason why this couldn't go. And I told him that. And, um, so we came to the decision and I started coming in part-time kept my role as president at my own company and was coming there, you know, part-time basis. And then eventually segued into, um, you know, becoming CEO. And that's kind of where we are now. Amazing. If we pull on the thread of succession of culture, learning what you learned from your family business, now you're stepping into this other company that had a crisis. Right. How did the first experience help you in that first year as you thought about succession of culture? Well, there's one thing, thing that's a big difference. And um, Redmond was, I mean, the wolves were at the door. This was not a great situation. In a lot of ways, that made it so much easier because <laughs> people, they were on board that something wasn't working. And maybe, you know, nobody, people are usually generally good with change as long as it's out there and it's not, you know, like, oh, me, you know, but it's for the most part, they didn't know what needed to change, but they knew what was happening wasn't working. So they were a little bit more open. There was that. That is one difference. At eight, things were going well. So nobody, you know, I was sort of upsetting the status quo at that point. But the difference that I, I made between each was, first of all, I was introduced differently. I came in, and because I was introduced by the owner of the company that had a lot of credibility, had credibility with everyone, and he introduced me as the new leader, um, and I wasn't related, I suddenly had more credibility than I think maybe even his wife did. You know, his wife came in there, and I think that there were certain things that um, she was maybe never given latitude to do. Um, There was also inherently, we know this is a do-over. It's a new person. And man, is there power in the do-over. You get to just, you know, wipe the slate clean. What I wanted to do, though, and what I saw as important was the thing that also didn't happen at my company was really talking to people, understanding their perception of what was going on, understanding what they knew their role to be, and then also getting to hear the mythology because there are the facts and then there are the facts as everybody knows them. And that mythology, whatever the story was, the company story was really important that I know that because, you know, if that's, if that's the wisdom, if that's what everybody thinks, you know, that's got to be addressed at some point. So I needed to understand that. And I also wanted to understand why people were there. This is a struggling company, you know, and the idea of people saying, well, it's a job. And it's like, yeah, there's lots of jobs. Why here? Um, and understanding what that was. You know, it was, it takes time. You got to be able to, if you're invested in changing a culture, and I knew immediately that's what it was because the math could work. So it was the culture that wasn't working. I knew immediately that's what had to be done. If that's what has to be done, then first let me respect it enough to take the time to see where we are and how we got there because businesses don't fail overnight, you know, and this was one of those situations of where, you know, one choice is made and it leads to this succession of ever narrowing choices and the narrower it gets, the worse they are. 
And in so many ways, I would say that Redmond, in a lot of ways, listen, they're there. It worked. Hats off. You know, it worked. But now how do we go for it? So just understanding that, hearing people's stories, understanding what they understood their role to be, what they thought was wrong, where they thought the wrong turns were. Things are really important to to sort of get to the bottom of and sort of trying to decipher what needs to be fixed. And then understanding those key people that if I didn't have those key people invested in what I was doing, if they didn't want to be on my side, didn't matter how talented I was or how smart I was or all the things I knew to do. It just wasn't going to matter. So, you know, investing the time to research and get to know people, having that respect for the organization, I think is really important. That was the first step. Really important. And I'd call that the listening tour, right? Where you really spend the time listening, asking good questions, and really trying to understand what could be different. How did we get to that point? Right. You know, I reflect back to the workshop that where we met. And if you remember, I had the flip chart. Yeah, and yeah. I wrote up the word transition on the flip chart. And I asked everyone in the room, we went around the room a few times. We had probably 30 words up there. <laughs> yeah. What comes to mind when I say the word transition? And not surprisingly, in, in your session, like many, the word change comes up. And one of the most recent episodes I did was with Dina Chachanov. She's a therapist and she works with family businesses. And so she's episode 96. And one of the things she said about the difference in her head, in her mind of change versus transition is that change is an action oriented thing and it happens and we take action on it. And she said transition. And so let's call that more from the head and the hands. And she said transition for her is more about from the heart and it happens over time. And so here we have two situations where there was change. There was a death, right? There was an immediate change in action. And the first example of your case study that you shared here with Ake Environmental, the transition did happen over time with you rising into your into your role first as vice president, then as president over time, right? In this situation, the business transition in and of itself with Redmond Waltz and its decline, it wasn't a thriving business. And then plus they had this, you know, dramatic change in leadership. So in both cases though, right, there was a change And then there was a transition. And it seems to me that because of your experience with the one, you were really helpful in the other. And it didn't matter if you were a family business member or not, you were the leader that they needed at that time, right place, right time to help them get through and on the path to a successful, sustainable transition. It was a turnaround, right? This was like, they had a lot of debt. Yep. The creditors, when you said the wolves were knocking, you're talking about the creditors, right? I I mean, in a literal sense, there were almost no vendor relationships. We were cash on delivery for everything, which, you know, yeah, that's a rough spot. That's a rough spot. Yeah. So it was tough. It was very tough. Amazing. And so how many years now has it been since you joined Redmond Waltz? It'll be nine years this year, you know, officially, I think it it's, like when I actually signed a contract was in 2014, but I, I first went there uh, in September of 2013. Amazing. And we can presume that business has been turned around. It's a healthy business and, it is. and you've, you've helped it grow. I'm yeah. sure. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. We've grown. Um, we've almost tripled. We actually have fewer employees, uh, but we've, you know, revenue is tripled. We're profitable. We've all that debt. Um, 
you know, is, is especially the, the scariest ones from, you know, <laughs> if you think of agencies that would have personal leverage over you, those are out of the picture, you know? So no, it's, it's, um, it went from being a really sad place to a, a very happy place. A thriving place. And a credit to you and your leadership team. I know that's not an easy thing. You know, hindsight is twenty twenty, and I think you have so many lessons learned here to share for the audience. If we were going to summarize and, su- you know, and say to the audience, hey, if this episode and just high level, what is it about? It's about de-risking the business, right? Mm-hmm. If we want to kind of summarize it that way. And the risks that you've identified with contingency planning, with documenting, there's so many things I'm sure you could say as, as recommendations, but what would be some of the top things you would recommend a business owner should do immediately, you know, in the next 30 days, 90 days, what should they do to de-risk the business given your experience? So I think that, and especially for small businesses, because in small businesses, there are not a lot of layers, you know, or there's no layers, you know, it's like two layers. Um, You know, they don't have, you know, like a larger business when they start thinking of succession, they can think of, you know, that they're going to pull, you know, Jenkins from, you know, Indianapolis is going to come down HQ or whatever it is, Um, making that part up. But, (laughs) um, but for a small business, thinking in those terms, yeah, there's a bunch of things that would have helped. One would be even having like a one page strategic plan, something like that would have been incredibly helpful for me. Um, You know, I I think at both companies, it would have been helpful. It would have helped to inform. It would have helped me to understand what I was stepping into. In a small business, especially if it's a family business or a closely held business, like I said, you know, these kinds of, like a strategic plan, you're talking all the time or, or who are you having that plan with yourself? You know, it seems sort of like this redundant task, but even if it doesn't totally get followed, it at least gives someone the idea of here's what I'm thinking about. Here's what I'm, you know, what I'm striving for. The SWOT analysis. Oh, man, if I could have understood the weaknesses or the threats that my aunt 20 years in the business perceived, you know, it would have saved me a ton of time. It would have saved me a ton of time to not have to discover that on my own. Um I'd say the second thing is just start having that conversation. Um, if something were to happen to you, something sudden, who is the who's the owner? That should obviously already be spelled out somewhere in your corporate documents. But if that person is not already inside the business, even if they are inside the business, who are the key people in your company that you need right now and you know you're going to need on the backside? I think bringing those people in having those conversations, you know, once a year even to just say, by the way, if something were to happen to me, this is what's going to happen. And so in, you know, something happening to me might not be that you die, could be just incapacitated. So, I mean, you know, that kind of thing is really important. I think that um, having that plan to just sort of lay it out for people And then the last thing I would say would be if you are a lot of small businesses have what I used to refer to as the oral tradition, just everything is spoken. Nothing is really documented Um, as much documentation as as possible. Yes, the, the, you know, strategic plan, but also little things like, you know, on your accounting, you know, on your monthly close. Are there notes? (laughs) 
you know, maybe make notes for those big purchases or those things that are sort of out of the norm or, um, you know, just being a little bit more descriptive. Leave breadcrumbs. Tell the story so that if somebody walking in, they know what was happening. Those things, I think, are really important in the face of disaster that you can do right now, right away. That's great insight. I really appreciate how you've shared your story. I know it's probably hard for people to think about. You know, we do say that every one of us is going to leave our business one day. And so many of us are thinking, oh, yeah, you know, it's down the road, but we don't control everything. And, and, And the five D's of what businesses can face in terms of business transition, these are derailers, you know, the five D's, death being one of them. And and so we've been able to focus on that today. And I really do appreciate you coming on and sharing your story, Jen. As I ask all of my guests, if they have a favorite quote or anything that inspires them, what's something that you think about? I do have a favorite quote, which is the Winston Churchill quote of um, when you're going through hell, keep going. That's a motivating thing for me that I know that when things seem really bleak or when things have seemed really bleak, taking action, just not stopping, not allowing myself any kind of paralysis, um, you know, that's, that keeps the momentum going of solving a problem. But I will say that in both businesses, something that we say all the time, and it's, it's a mantra, it's a really important to all of us here and especially important to me. And that is that we are big on happiness, my happiness and your happiness. If you're not happy at this job, there's no way I'm going to be happy. You know, we are dependent upon each other, but just to recognize a full-time job is 2,080 hours a year. It's a lot of time. And it's a lot of time to spend someplace that you don't love or that is mediocre or that is draining you psychically. And to recognize that, that if you're going to spend that much time somewhere, you better love it. You know, you should minimally like it, but you should love it. Not necessarily love every task, but love the experience. And I think that keeping people aware of that that's part of this. Um, yes, making money, but, you know, who wants to be miserable making money? I don't know. It, it's just, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. So, those are the things that get said a lot at my company and, you know, the Winston church. I mean, you can count on Churchill for a lot of different, a lot of different inspiring quotes for sure. Yeah, for sure. Jen, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Email is probably the best way. Uh, J Marriott, two R's, two T's, just like the hotel um, at Redmond Waltz. That's my, or at Ake Lab, either one. I'm at both places. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thanks again for sharing your stories and insights and being with me today on Succession Stories. Thanks, Lori. I appreciate it. And to the listeners, I appreciate you. Please subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And you can also find us on YouTube. Until next time, here is to your success. My objective is for you to have a lucrative and successful succession. If you want to understand the value of your company today, that's a great place to start. The sooner you understand what creates value and what detracts from it, the more time you'll have to close the gap if there is one. Hundreds of business owners have taken my complimentary business assessment. As a first step, schedule a call with me by visiting meetlauriebarkman.com. That's meetlauriebarkman.com.